You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. All right, let's do it. John 10. John 10. If you have a Bible or a phone, get to John chapter 10. Uh, my name is Zach Cunningham. I'm excited uh, to be back to teach. Uh, it's been over a month since the last time I preached. I'm very thankful for Wade and Drew and Shane and Jeff for coming to preach God's word to us. Um, And as of right now, it looks like this might be my last sermon here at Overflow this year. Uh, There's only three weeks left after tonight, and I think that we have all of our bases covered. I was talking with some of my guys about if I had one sermon left to preach, um, one message, one passage of scripture, what would it be? Um, There's a lot of passages in the Bible that have had a huge impact on my life. Uh, Matthew 7, uh, Ephesians 2, Philippians 3, Psalm 16, um, but none as much as probably John 10 and Romans 8. And because I couldn't choose between the two of those, I'm just going to preach them both tonight. Um, We're going to be camped out in John 10 for the majority of the night with a sprinkle here and there of Romans. Um, A couple weeks ago, there were helicopters at UNT. These were film helicopters, uh, news helicopters, filming what was going down in the library mall a couple weeks ago. Um, In my time at UNT, every Wednesday, um, there would be one or two street preachers set up uh, on Highland Street between the BLB and the library mall. Um, Usually one or two guys on a microphone uh, with a Bible in hand preaching from God's word. Uh, with people walking by, and they would field questions from these guys. Uh, And we would go by uh, and try to engage students and try to share the gospel. It's actually where I met uh, Micah Templeton. Um, But usually, these stayed quite peaceful. Um, No riots, no counter-protest. Like I said, it was quite peaceful. Well, if you were at UNT a couple weeks ago, it most definitely was not that. Um, If you weren't there or have no clue what I'm talking about, I'll paint the picture for you. Um, think seven to ten guys from one organization, a street preacher's organization, uh, and they came with signs uh, as a way of outreach. Um, and these signs went from anywhere from um, Black Lives Matter are terrorist, or gay, like an acrostic, and said, got AIDS yet. One had a list of sins, uh, a list large enough to uh, cover everyone in this room, followed by repent or go to hell. Uh, What else? There were some other repent and believe signs. Um, And these guys caused quite the scene on campus um, with hundreds of people coming out in counter-protest with flags and signs, and they were shouting back at them. Uh, And many of you came out there uh, with me, uh, and you were heartbroken at the people who would come by, um, and they were getting shouting matches, and they would leave um, with a more hardened heart for the gospel. Um, First, I'd like to encourage you in that while that may have been chaotic, God definitely can and does use that to save people. Uh, And if one person got saved as a result of that, praise God. Second, there are a couple of signs that I want to direct you to and mention before we get started tonight. Two signs in particular that were directed towards Muslims. One said, Jesus has a pressure cooker for all dead Muslims. The second said this, all real Muslims are jihadist. 
Now, there's no mention of a crockpot in the Bible, uh, nor am I here to debate the tenets of Islam, but most of us in this room would agree that that's probably not the best way to share the gospel, the transforming work of Jesus Christ um, with Muslims. It's not the best way. But I ask you then, what is? What is the best way to share the gospel with Muslims? Our hearts and our minds are quick to say, that's not the best way to share the gospel, which, side note, I agree with. But what is the best way? What is inside the gospel that would be sweet to the ears of a Muslim? Because there is something. When I went to Asia, to a country with Islam as the state religion, uh, and they banned Christian missionaries, uh, we evangelized primarily with Muslims, um, which, to be completely honest, uh, I was terrified of simply due to my ignorance of Islam and my lack of experience uh, and obedience in sharing the gospel with Muslims. But the more we studied and trained on ways to share, we did find something that we appealed to every single time without fail, um, something that we could say to a Muslim, and it would spark their interest, and they would ask questions back to us. And this is what we said. We are not afraid to die, because we know that when we die, we are going to heaven. And that is simple, but that is profound. In the Islam faith, there is no assurance. Their life is a scale where they hope that their good works outweigh the bad, but they cannot know that they are saved. And one day when we were in Asia, Pat, Jesse, and I were sharing the gospel in a food court to an engaged couple and telling them about the assurance that we have in Jesus Christ. And they could not believe it. They said, there's no way that that is true. And that's because they were raised to believe that you have to do good things, don't do bad things, and even then, you cannot know where you stand in the eyes of God. And if you ask a Muslim if they're going to go to heaven when they die, they will say one of two things, almost without fail. They'll say, I don't know, or they'll say, inshallah. And that's Arabic for God willing. Or also, I have no idea. They have no assurance. They hope that God will show them mercy on the day that they die, and that he will let him into heaven. They cannot be sure of their salvation. They hope in their good works. They hope in their good works. And here it is. I'm going to give you the end of my sermon right now. While they hope in their good works, the Christians hope in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Tonight, the title of this message is Saved by Grace, Kept by Grace. And we're going to look at what the Bible says about two key doctrines of the Christian faith, assurance and perseverance. Basically, our aim is to answer two questions. How do I know that I'm saved? And can I lose my salvation? And my hope is that you would leave here with a better understanding of the grace of God, which is far deeper than we can ever understand. So how do I know that I am saved? Assurance. Defined as the confidence in one's salvation. The idea that sitting in this room tonight, you can be sure, not 90% sure, and not think, but absolutely sure that you can be saved. And perseverance. Can I lose my salvation? Also known as once saved, always saved. This idea that if by God's grace you have been saved, then you will make it to the end. That God's grace saves you. And God's grace also keeps you. And I want to show it to you in scripture. Uh, here's the plan for tonight. 
Uh, we're going to go through John 10, cruising at about 60 miles per hour. It's going to feel like you're at Yellowstone National Park, driving by some beautiful goodness. You're going to want to slow down. You're going to want to get out, and you're going to want to look around. But we've got to make it to the destination, so don't get out. Buckle up. We're going to go fast. I'm going to be like a tour guide. I'm going to give you quick insights on some things as we go. You can research it later. But there's a waterfall of grace at the end of this train. And so we're going to get after it and go for a swim. You'll thank me later. So I'm going to show you these two things, perseverance and assurance in John 10. I'm going to give you common objections to these things. I'm going to object those objections. We're going to have a conversation about doubt, and then we're going to sing. Sound good? John 10, verse 1, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber, like Santa Claus. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So Jesus contrasts two people so far, the thief and the shepherd. The thief jumps the fence, the shepherd goes through the door. And who are the sheep? The people of God. Verse 3 is important. It says this, The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So first, the sheep hear his voice. Second, the shepherd calls his sheep by name. By name. Jesus knows his people by name name. And we'll see this in the coming verses. And this is wonderful. If you are in Christ, Jesus knows you. You're not some peon. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Patrick, come forth. Lauren, come forth. You are his and he knows you by name. And if you hear one thing tonight, outside of these two fancy words that I'm trying to convey to you, hear this. If you are in Christ, Jesus knows you better than you know you, and he calls you by name. Listen, there's a difference between saying, I love you, and I love you, Mally. There's a difference. It's personal. We got to fly. Verse 4. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So the Jews don't understand it, and Jesus is going to change it up a little bit. Um, So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So I am the door. Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man gets to the Father except through me. I am the door. Salvation and provision go through that door. It's abundant life. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So what does Jesus love more, his life or the sheep? Well, the answer's right there. Keep going. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. 
and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So what does the hired hand love more? The sheep, his own life, or money? Well, it's not the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. So we see an incredible connection between Jesus and God the Father in verse 15, and then a statement with huge implications in verse 16. He says, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. So Jesus is talking to Jews here, and he says, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. And he's referring to Gentiles, that this salvation is not just for Jews like they thought, but it's for Gentiles also, which is incredibly exciting news for us because we're all Gentiles in here, unless there's a Jew here. Salvation is for us as well. But make sure you see the boldness and the certainty in verse 16. Look at what it says. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. There's no room for failure. This is a promise. Verse 17, for this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. So Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he has the authority to lay down his life and then take it up again. This is ultimate authority. So Jesus is good, and he has ultimate authority. And we talked about this last time. If Jesus was good but he had not authority, we are fools. And if he had all authority and he was not good, he would be Hitler and Nero on the supreme level and we're even bigger fools. But he is the good shepherd and he has ultimate authority over sin and death. Verse 19, we're almost there. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why should we listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It's Hanukkah. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So the Jews tell Jesus to stop playing and get to the point, and Jesus doesn't like that. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Verse 26 is a crazy profound verse, uh, and I dare you to study it. It says, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So do they not belong because they do not believe, or do they not believe because they do not belong? I'll let you decide. But we're finally here. Verse 27 is where we're parking this baby. Look at it. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, 
and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is the most explicit and strongest passage in the entire Bible about the ultimate security for all true Christians. And if you missed it, you need to read it again and again and again until it slaps you upside the head. Look at verse 27 again. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. So the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. In the ancient Middle East, multiple sheepfolds and shepherds would travel together, and they would be at watering holes together, intermingled. But when it was go time, the shepherd would call out to his sheep, and they would hear it, and they would follow him. And so question, according to verse 27, how can you know that you are saved, that you are one of the sheep? The answer is, you hear the voice of the shepherd, and you follow him. So, do you hear his voice? What does that mean? Am I supposed to be waiting around for some audible voice from heaven? The Bible talks a lot about the word called. Called. Jesus called his sheep by name. And Paul will say this. It's like a calling. Like, my name is Paul, bondservant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, or called to be a teacher, or called to be a firefighter. So like a calling. Um, also in the Bible is the call for the command from God to call all sinners to repentance. Come, repent, believe, and be baptized. But in the Bible, there is another call, and it's the call of salvation. And with that, I'll take you to Romans chapter 8. Hold that spot in John and get to Romans chapter 8. We'll be in verse 28, a very popular verse. Romans 8, 28. And we're going to go back and forth between John, 8, John 10 and Romans 8. Verse 28, if you, if you got it, say, got it. got it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called, called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you are in here, and you're a believer in Christ, at some point in your life, you heard the call. The Holy Spirit worked in your heart in such a way to make you hate your sin and repent and see Jesus as beautiful, and you were saved. And for the first time, you heard his voice. And in this world, with a lot of voices calling out for your attention and energy, um, culture and sin have given sex, money, entertainment, pleasure, loud voices. And among all of these voices, you heard a whisper, and he called you by name, and you have never heard a sweeter voice than that. And so you are called by him and for him, and you're a new creation and he called you by name according to his purpose. And so how can you know that you were saved? Because you heard his voice, and it was sweet, and you're a new creation, and you follow the good shepherd now. 
You've got new desires. Flip back to John chapter 10. It says something else. How can you know that you're saved sitting here? You hear his voice, but it also says that you follow him. How can you know that you're saved? Because you follow the good shepherd. Obedience is the mark of a true Christian. You are not saved because you obey. You obey because you are saved. And if you really want to know if you're saved, if you want to have assurance, you've got to get down to the depth of your heart, get through all the lies, and you've got to ask yourself this question. Do I hate the sin that I once loved? And do I love the God that I once ignored? Do you hate the sin you once loved and love the God you once ignored? Because when you become a Christian, you don't just have a new relationship with God, one from enemy to child. You have a new relationship with sin, one of hatred and sweet conviction. And so do you hear Jesus' voice and follow him? Because that is blessed assurance. Jesus is yours. Perseverance. Let's keep going. Verse 28. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Verse 28 is the key verse for this doctrine of perseverance. Everyone and their mama knows the verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, follow the logic, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now look at verse 28. It has the same logic, but it adds something. They will never perish. They will have eternal life. And then it adds one of the most beautiful pieces the gospel has. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Once you are part of the sheepfold and thus are recipient of eternal life, you are within the grip of the Father's hand, who is greater than all, and he won't let anyone, Satan or yourself, to snatch you out of that hand. So now let me ask you this. Is that security based on the skill of the sheep to stay in that hand or the power of the God whose hand it is? Amen. Look at the next verse. Jesus does not leave this to question. Verse 29. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Why can't we lose our salvation? Because God is greater than all, period. God's grace saves you and God's grace keeps you. God has a fold of sheep, a people for his own possession who he gave to the Father, who gave to Christ, to die for, Romans 8, those, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified on the cross, and those whom he justified, he also glorified in the end. From beginning to end, salvation belongs to God, who is the author and, catch this, finisher of our faith. God is the one who saves, and God is the one who keeps, and praise God for that. Now, those are the two sweet doctrines of perseverance and assurance. And with that come some objections. Where you hear this and you think, wait a second, uh, your mind starts to draw dots. 
and connect them, and you say, that doesn't make sense, or what about this? Three of which I want to hit on tonight. I'm going to provide a defense, and you can be the judge whether I was faithful to reality and to the scriptures. So the first one is this. Isn't that arrogant? Isn't that arrogant? I say this. I know that I am saved, and I know I won't lose my salvation. And you say, Zach, that sounds pretty arrogant. Isn't that confidence and pride? Arrogance. And this one is easier to understand. Um, Is that arrogant? If salvation was by works, absolutely. If you earned your salvation and are claiming that by the power of your own might, you're going to keep it, that is not the most arrogant statement you can say. But if salvation was by grace, owing nothing to what you have done or will do, and you are kept by grace, that is not boasting in yourself. That is boasting in the Savior. And this is found in Ephesians 2, 8. It'll be on the screen. Our salvation and perseverance, owing completely grace, takes away the grounds for boasting. Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. No boasting. If you boast in your salvation, you are a fool. And I'll show it to you in Philippians 1, 6. It'll be on the screen. Paul says this, and I am sure of this. Paul says he is sure that he, being God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God is the one who saves us, and he will complete his work in us. Christians are not arrogant in themselves. Christians boast in their Savior. We boast in our Savior. Um, This doctrine is often referred to as the perseverance of the saints. And that's true, but it's also true, and perhaps even more so, to call it this, the preservation of the sinner. The preservation of the sinner. God preserves us. It is his doing, not our own. John MacArthur says this of losing salvation. If you could lose your salvation, you would. We are sinners in need of God's grace. Okay, that's the first objection. Second, isn't this just a license to sin? Isn't this just a license to sin? Um, first, my first response is this. A true Christian would never ask that question. But let's look at Paul's response to this. Go to Romans 6. Romans 6. We mean verse 1. And we're looking at, is perseverance of the saints a license to sin? Romans 6, verse 1 says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? This is the exact objection. And Paul poses it here. If grace is always going to cover our sin, and the more that we sin, the more grace is going to cover Would we not sin so that we receive more grace? Look at what Paul says. By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? And some translations will say not at all. And that phrase in the Greek is the hardest way, the most strong way to say no 
in Greek. It means God forbid. So people ask Paul, um, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul says, absolutely not. And then he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? So is this a license to sin? No, it is the death certificate to sin. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Keep reading. Or do you not know that those who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, we've been baptized into his death. Therefore, just as Christ was buried and raised from the dead, we too may walk in newness of life. New life, new creation, new shepherd, new goal, new purpose, new desires. And look at verse 15 of chapter 6. Paul, it says the same thing. Paul is going to make the same point. They say, shall we continue to sin because we're no longer under law but under grace? By no means. Paul makes his point very clear. Okay, we have to keep moving. Third objection. What about the person who walked away? This one will be the most personal to a lot of us. What about the people, Zach, who professed Christianity and have since walked away from the faith? Did they not lose their salvation? Did they not lose their salvation? I know of a lot of people who fall into this category. People who have walked away. And the Bible is not without an answer to this. And many of you may have already come to this conclusion. 1 John, I'm going to put it on the screen, 2.19. It says this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. John is specifically talking about false teachers here, but he makes a point that is relevant to everybody who walks away, and the answer to that is they were not saved to begin with. They were not saved to begin with. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So if they had been of us, they would have what? Continued with us. True Christians will persevere to the end. Here's what this means. I'm friends with a lot of you on Facebook. Um, In 20 years, hypothetically, if you checked in with me and you saw that I had walked away from the ministry I had denied Jesus Christ, and I did not believe any of this. You know for a fact that this all was for show. It was my own selfish game, and I was never saved by the gospel that I preach. But by God's grace, he will keep me to the end. But let's entertain this point a little further to make a point. Um, This is actually a lot more significant than you might think. Um, This perseverance of the saints, that God's going to keep his people Um, because let's say one did fall away. Let's say Ben Huddleston fell away. What are the implications of that? Um, Charles Spurgeon's going to say this. Um, I'm going to read a couple quotes from Charles Spurgeon. If one dear saint of God had perished, so might all. If one of the covenant ones be lost, so may all be. Then there is no gospel promise true and the Bible's a lie. And there is nothing in it worth my acceptance. I will be an infidel at once when I can believe that a saint of God can ever fall finally. If God had loved me once, he will love me 
forever. He keeps going to say this, I could never either believe or preach a gospel which saves me today and rejects me tomorrow. A gospel which puts me in Christ's family one hour and makes me a child of the devil the next. A gospel which has first justified and then condemned me. A gospel which pardons me and afterwards casts me down to hell. Such a gospel is abhorrent to reason itself, but much more is it contrary to the mind of the God whom we delight to serve. Spurgeon shuts down the idea of one falling away. The gospel is complete from beginning to end. No one falls through. Praise be to God for that. Okay, let's, let me close with a conversation about doubts. And here's why. I've been talking about assurance all night. The Bible clearly states that you can know that Christ died for you. But I am not stupid. I know that the head knowledge of that can be there. But the heart affirmation might not be. And that there are people in this room. The opposite of assurance to be sure is doubt. And that there are people in this room who doubt, have doubted, will doubt, and are currently doubting. And I want to address it real fast. Because doubt, in and of itself, is not bad. Um, One of the first reasons why people might doubt their salvation is because they aren't saved. Does it make sense? They doubt it because they're not saved to begin with. This was me for 19 and a half years of my life. I grew up in a Christian home. I got to college, and I started to doubt my salvation. Am I really saved? And this doubt led to discovery, and God used that to call me home to him. And Matthew 7 talks about people who die, go to Jesus, and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this in your name? And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. And I knew in that moment that that was me. And I doubted 19 and a half years of fake Christian life. And I put my trust in God and was saved. And that doubt actually worked counterintuitively. Because instead of driving it to unbelief, it drove to belief. Doubt in and of itself is not a bad thing. And if that is you tonight, welcome home. Jesus is calling. Second reason people doubt They forget how they are saved. We're saved by grace. But our culture says it is performance-based. Everything is performance-based. Culture has discipled you to believe that you must achieve to succeed. And when you let that get in your mind, it'll convince you that you're not saved by grace and that you start doubting your salvation. And this is why we use the phrase, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Christian, do not forget You were saved by grace. John Piper will ask this. He'll say this. Why do you think you woke up a Christian? And at first I'm like, what do you mean, JP? Like, I just woke up, dude. But think about that. Why did you wake up believing the things that you believed? There's a reason why. God keeps his own. And God will keep his own forever. He's the perfecter of faith. The last point on doubt, and it's perhaps the biggest, we doubt because we fall back into sin that we once thought we had defeated. And this is it. This is perhaps the biggest point, why people doubt that they are saved. 
they fall back into sin that they once thought they had done away with. And more often than not, this seems to come in the area of lust, pornography, and sexual sin, where by God's grace you are doing well, defeating sin, really trusting the Lord, and then one night, temptation comes in and you fall. And you think, man, I, am I even saved? I should be better than this. And afterwards, you are ashamed, you're guilty, and you're driven to doubt. And with that, I'm going to take you back to Romans 8. Go to Romans 8 once more. We're going to be in verse 9. Romans 8, verse 9 says this. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Here it is. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Listen to me. You are not helpless against this fight. You have the spirit of God in you. The spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells inside of you. You are not helpless and you are not a victim of it. So fight like your life depends on it. God did not give you a spirit leading to fear that you might drift. He gave you the spirit so that you might fight. This is why Christ died for you. You have the blood of the Son of God. You have the hope of salvation. You have the entire Bible and all the promises in it. So fight like your life depended on it and prove yourself to have true saving faith. The Spirit of God lives in you. And something that has helped me, this idea that eternal life does not start when you die. Eternal life starts when you're saved. And you can have freedom. You do not have to be crippled by doubt. You can know Christ. And so what is our response to all of this assurance and perseverance? Look down, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirits of God are sons of God. Assurance. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So Romans says you were not given the spirit of fear. You were given the spirit of adoption. And that phrase is very intentional. In Roman law in this time, you could disown your child if you wanted to. Um, you could strip him of his birthright, his inheritance, and his name. But if you adopted a child, it was permanently added to your family. He or she was permanently added, and you cannot disown them. And that is the salvation that we have in God. God is faithful. At a lot of weddings, they have a first dance. I'm learning that. And a lot of other weddings have dances um, for couples. And the longer that you've been married, the longer you dance. Which is always funny, because the people who just got married have to sit down first. 
But the longer you are married, the longer you dance. So 20 years, you know, some people sit down. Okay, 30 years, some people sit down. And it keeps going until there's one couple left. And at that moment, everyone cheers and claps for them. And our heart starts to sing. That is incredible. I want that. Such faithfulness to one another. Listen to me. That is just a shadow of the faithfulness that God shows us. There's a reason why our heart sings that song. God has placed eternity in our hearts. And we have a God who is faithful to us for that amount of time and a Christ who will love his bride forever and ever. He will not abandon his bride. And so what do we do as a response to this message? Look down at Romans 8, 31. Paul's going to ask the same question. 8, 31. Paul says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect, his sheep? It is God who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? It is Christ Jesus who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. Who, look at this, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Separate. Who's going to separate us from it? Will tribulation or distress or nakedness or peril or danger or sword? Just as it is written, for your name's sake, we are being put to death. We are like sheep to be slaughtered. But in all of these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I'm convinced, that's assurance, that neither death nor life, angels or demons, catch this, nor things present or what? Things to come. Nor any power, height, or depth will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because we're in the grip of the Father. And the Father is greater than all. And no one can snatch us from his hand. No power in hell, no scheme of man can ever snatch us from his hand. And so what do we do as a response to this? I want to close with a prayer as Aaron and Jared make their way up um, from a couple of verses. Go to Jude 24. It's a, it's a second to last book in the Bible, right before Revelation. Jude 24. All night... I have tried to show you from all over the Bible that God's grace saves us and keeps us until the end and how without it, we have no gospel at all, but with it, we have a gospel worth sharing and a gospel worth singing about. And my hope is that you leave here tonight seeing the grace of God in a way that motivates you to share it and to sing about it. And so I'm gonna pray this prayer over you and look at how Jude responds to this. Song and praise. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and catch this forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. 
we ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.